may be seated. Thank you for singing so well, church family. I just want to acknowledge that the Spirit of the Lord is here in our midst, and I'm grateful for that. No matter who you are this morning, or where you've been, or what you've experienced this week, my prayer for you, and for all of us, is that we can experience God's glory right here, right now, through His Word. Will you pause with me for a word of prayer? Father, we acknowledge your presence that is here today and every time your people gather. Lord, we think about what you're doing there at Asbury Seminary and we praise you for that. But we also praise you that revival is not limited to a locality or a building or a preacher or a worship team. But it is where your people seek you and pour out their hearts confession and repentance. Pray that you would do a work of revival here at Faith Church in Chandler and Warwick County in our state, in our country, and in the world. Lord, I pray that our minds and our hearts will be focused on you and your goodness today. Pray that you speak, Lord. Your servants are indeed listening. Lord, I have nothing to bring except you. So Lord, I pray that you guide and lead, help us to focus, help us to listen, and help us to be receptive to your word. Your word is alive and powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the deepest parts of our soul. I pray that you'll do that and point us to the hope that we have through our Messiah, Jesus. We praise you and we thank you that you are here today. In your name we pray, amen. I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 3. You can also look in the Pew Bible in front of you. It's on page 2. That's simple enough. Page 2. We actually are going to journey through this whole passage together this morning, but hopefully we're going to slow down and do it in more um, digestible process so that we're going to kind of work our way through the chapter as a whole. You know, brokenness... It's something that every last one of us can identify with. And if we were to take the time this morning, we're not going to do that. That's one of our functions of community group. is for you to be able to be vulnerable and broken. Because too many times Christians come together on Sunday morning and we have a face. We have a smile on our face. We should smile because Christ has done great things for us. And yet, the reality that we live in is the world of pain and brokenness, and disappointment, and bad diagnoses from the doctor, and tragic news, and teenagers involved in things they should never be involved in, and death, and mourning, and sadness, and we could go all around the room, and each of you this morning have different brokenness in your heart, and if we're honest with ourselves... Some of us, it's hard for us to even focus this morning because we're thinking about the brokenness and the pain in our world. And what I want to invite all of us to do this morning is to consider why. To consider where all of that comes from. So I want us to think this morning about the brokenness of our world and the goodness of our God. The title of the message today is simply this, Our Broken Story. Our broken story. For the past few weeks, we've been in a sermon series about finding faith in a world of doubt and unbelief 
and lies. And this morning we're going to focus on what people have called the problem of evil. Many of our friends and neighbors, many of the people that you've invited to Alpha Group, many of the people that you work with, many of the people that maybe even are here this morning are silently suffering in unbelief because they cannot understand how a good God can coexist in a world with so much horrible in it. When we talk about the problem of evil, we're talking about something that every human can relate to. Our story is the story of disappointment, rejection, disease, tragedy, and death, yet those things do not get the final word. The Word of God says in John chapter 1 that the darkness tried to overcome and it did not. The darkness tried to overcome and it did not. As we read through Genesis 3 in just a few moments, I want you to think about the difference between the logical problem of evil and the emotional problem of evil. The logical problem of evil is worried about how we can give a rational explanation to the coexistence of a good God and evil. The emotional problem of evil, on the other hand, is more about how do we comfort people who are suffering and how do we dissolve the emotional dislike that people have towards pain or towards a God who would permit such evil. So pain and suffering, that's where we're going this morning. Pain and suffering often bring about in our lives a greater good that we don't see in the moment as we're experiencing it. I want to give you four important distinctions before we read the text about pain and suffering. Number one, our happiness is not God's first priority. The chief purpose in life is not happiness, but in the knowledge of God. Number two, humans are in a state of rebellion against God and His purposes. Number three, God's purpose is not restricted to this life, but it spills over to life beyond the grave into eternal life. And number four, the knowledge of God is an incommensurable good. J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig wrote this great book called Philosophical Foundations of a Christian Worldview. It's really massive. Um, I encourage you, if you want to read it, read it. Or you could just take my summary of their chapter. Craig and Moreland say this, God is the final answer to the problem of evil. For he redeems us from evil and he takes us into an everlasting joy of an incommensurable good, fellowship with himself. So the problem of evil. Let's journey through Genesis chapter 3 together. As we journey through the passage, we're going to highlight four aspects of our story our human story. Let's read verses 1 through 7 together. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will surely die. For God knows in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of them both were opened, They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made 
themselves covering. Four aspects of our human story. Number one, we are tainted with deception and shame. We are tainted with deception and shame. In order to properly understand this passage, we have to go back to chapter 2 and verse 17 and 16, where God said, The Lord commanded the man, Of every tree in the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Deception and shame. That is where every temptation always begins, is doubting what God said. You and I relate with the story of Adam and Eve on so many levels. Because when we are tempted in this life, Satan comes to us with something that God has said, and he perverts it and turns it into something ugly. That's what he always does. So he begins to come to the woman, and he says, Did God really say? So emotionally, she begins to have what people in our time have described as FOMO. Do you know what that means? Fear of missing out. God is holding out on me. So maybe what the serpent is telling me, which you and I know, the problem isn't the snake. The problem is the, the being, the entity that embodied the serpent, which is Satan, the devil, the deceiver, the adversary, the accuser of the brothers. We are tainted with deception and shame. Romans Paul tells us that the God of this age, people are blinded because of the God of this age and because they personally repress the truth. We are easily deceived, but our deception always results in shame. And I'm here to tell you this morning on the authority of God's word, if you're here and you feel shame because of your past, there is a difference between guilt and shame. Christ isn't shaming you. Shame says, I am a failure. Guilt says, I failed. There's an important difference. And if you're here this morning and you hear nothing else I say, and you feel overwhelmed by the burdens of the world, and you feel like God could never love you, God could never forgive you, God could never take you back into his family, that shame is absorbed in the cross of Jesus if you just come to him. And you don't even have to wait until I'm finished. If the Spirit of God is convicting you and you feel shame, the Word of God says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is no condemnation to those who are in Jesus. So are you in Jesus or not? Because if you're in Jesus, the shame has to go. But we are tainted with deception and shame. Let's continue reading in verse 8. Verse 8 tells us this. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam, his wife, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Press pause for a moment. The same question that God asked Adam, he is asking you. It's not that he doesn't know because he's omniscient. He knows everything. But God is asking you to search in your heart of hearts this morning, where are you? Are you walking with him or are you far from him? You know the answer to that, not me. Where are you? And what can we do to help you take your next step in following him? Continue in verse 10. So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, 
Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. Verse 13, The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall be over you. Four aspects. Number one, we're tainted with sin and deception and shame. Number two, we are separated from God. Immediately, in the moment of this decision, there is a separation that impacted not only the vertical relationship between the first couple, but also horizontally. What is the first thing they start doing? Blaming one another. Adam ends up later on in the story blaming Eve. Eve blames the serpent. We do the same thing. We refuse to take responsibility for our actions, and we are quick to cast the blame on anybody but ourselves. And as it relates to the problem of evil, we can deal with it when evil people suffer. But we have a hard time struggling when people who we would define as good struggle. But I submit to you that we're all evil, and we're all equally separated from God. Isaiah chapter 59 says this in a very vivid way. If you want to go look up a word study that will really challenge you, where he says our garments are as filthy rags. I'm not going to go into all that that means, but you go home, look it up. Nothing in our hands we bring. Nothing in our, that in us, except for the fact that we're made in his image, is pleasing to him. We are totally separated from him. Now some people will focus on the details in these verses. God is walking in the garden. This is what theologians call an anthropomorphism. What's that mean? Anthropology, study of humans, study of man, study of human nature, anthropomorphism. We know that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The point of this passage is not the embodiment of the divine. We'll talk about the incarnation another time. The point of this passage is that we are separated from God. And that is the source of our brokenness. People here in our county, the number of drug users that we have, addiction, brokenness, where's all that come from? It's because we all, and I say we all, because even if you may not struggle with addiction, we all deal with our problems in different ways. And rather than going to God, the source of our hope and our life, we go to other things, ultimately empty things that don't satisfy us. We're broken. We're separated from God. We don't have to stay separated. Christ came to, bridge, to, to build a bridge so we can come back to God. Let's continue reading as we notice the third aspect of our story in verse 17. Adam, to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. 
and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the herb of the field, and in the sweat of your brow you will eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Number one, we're tainted with deception and shame. Number two, we're separated from God. Number three, we're exhausted from endless and seemingly never-ending work. Work is not a curse. Working by the sweat of our brow is a curse. God created man to work, to manage his creation, to be a manager or what we call a steward of what he had given him there in the garden, but we are exhausted. And I'm surprised that there were no amens there. How many times do we go to work and we feel like, why are we doing this meaningless circle of continuing to repeat the same thing every time we clock in? There has to be more to life than simply working, paying bills, and dying. And yet, we relate with the curse of Adam here. He is cursed to work by the sweat of his brow. Some of you have come here to Faith Church this morning, and if you're honest with yourself and you're honest with God, you are exhausted. Life has come at you. The devil has come at you. Pain and sorrow and agony have come at you. Life has come at you. You're, you relate to what the writer of Ecclesiastes says, that all is vanity and meaningless. You've come here this morning, and you, are, you just don't know how you're going to carry on. I submit to you one of the first steps to that is recognizing that you can't carry on. As Pastor Daniel said earlier this morning, it is only when you recognize your dependence on Him. Are you tired, weary, exhausted? Run to the cross, the anchor for our soul. Notice with me the fourth aspect as we wrap up our reading here and then try to apply this more practically to all of us here. Verses 20 to 24. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And for Adam, his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and he clothed them. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed a cherubim at the east of the garden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. The fourth aspect of our human story, we are restored through God's gracious provision. Deism is a philosophy that teaches that God created the world, set it into motion, the divine clockmaker wound it up, and then left us all to our devices. But that's false. Because our God is still involved providentially in His creation. And Genesis 3 is not just a story about brokenness, brothers and sisters. Right here we see restoration, promise, and hope. What's the first thing they do when they realize that they there's deception and shame? They make these fig leaf aprons. We can be really creative at trying to cover up and hide our sin, but there is no hiding from God. And yet what God does in His gracious provision is He actually says, here, let me give you a garment to cover you. And there is a danger in spiritualizing text. And sometimes in Christian history, allegory has been used to make passages in the Bible mean what they do not mean in their context from the original author. 
But I want to give you an analogy this morning. The New Testament teaches us this, brothers and sisters. If you're in Christ, He has given you new garments. You don't have to wear those dirty, beat-up, torn, and tattered garments anymore. And just like He made a provision for Eve and Adam in the garden and gave them new clothing, we are covered through the righteousness of Jesus. We are covered through His blood. We have access to God now because of what Jesus did on the cross. And I don't want to over-spiritualize this passage, but He has clothed you and I with garments of righteousness. So if you want to know what is the, the sermon in a sentence this morning, it's this. Brokenness causes us to reflect on the deepest questions of life, which cannot be answered satisfactorily without acknowledging and trusting in the Jesus of the Bible. Brokenness forces us to reflect on the hard questions that we never want to talk about, and the only way we can answer those questions is by acknowledging and trusting in the Jesus of the New Testament. Why does all this matter? How does all of this relate to us? Well, there are major world religions, and every world religion has a different answer for the problem with what's wrong in the world. Judaism understands sin as a violation of the divine commandments of God on the part of human beings who have a God-given free will. That's important. Christianity defines sin as missing the mark. The benchmark for the Christian understanding of sin is Adam and Eve, here in Genesis chapter 3. Freely choosing to partake of the forbidden fruit. What about Islam? Islam sees sin as anything that goes against the will of Allah. It teaches that sin is an act and not a state of being. What about Buddhism? Why are you telling me all these different world religions, Dustin? This is why. We live in a society that we all have connections with people of neighboring faiths. There's a great book I encourage you to buy and read. Um, it's called The Universe Next Door. It was originally written, I think, in the 70s, and they redid it. I had to read it in college. It's called The Universe Next Door. It's a survey of just kind of like what everybody believes. Obviously, there's the danger of oversimplification, but for our purposes here this morning, I want us to ask this question. What's wrong with the world? And I want to submit to you that only biblical Christianity answers the deepest questions that we have. Every other world religion borrows from the Bible. But it ultimately, it just, it's one thing to come up with a theory on what we think is the problem. But that has to be put into practice. Only biblical Christianity answers the deepest longing of the human heart. What about Buddhism? There is no Buddhist concept of sin per se, even though there is ideas like karma, action and consequence, and demerits. Everything is, is about that action and consequence relationship in Buddhism. Hinduism, sin refers to actions that create negative karma or those actions that violate the moral and ethical codes. Sin in Hinduism is not a crime against God. Rather, it is a, an act against the moral order and against one's own self. There's a different group of religion, um, the Bahi faith, which is kind of foundational for New Age spirituality, I guess. And they basically consider humans naturally good. Do you know that's one of the greatest obstacles that we face in Warwick County to sharing Christ with people? 
if you ask people, first of all, are you a Christian? Basically, everybody's going to say yes. We are not naturally good. We are made in God's image and according to His likeness. We are part of His creation that Genesis 1 and 2 describes as good. But we are fallen. And so the Bahi faith is fundamentally wrong because it says that humans are naturally good. Also, Oprah Winfrey teaches this stuff. If you want to get really fired up this afternoon, that's an Alabama word for you guys, by the way. Go online and type in the Church of Oprah. It's this garbage. It teaches us that rather than us being made, made in God's image, that, that we make God in our image. And that we're basically good people. And everybody thinks they're basically a good person. But brothers and sisters, the Word of God says that there is none righteous. No, not even one. And the double negative is important, by the way. None of us. None of us, none of us, none of us, not Pastor Daniel, not Pastor Eric, all of our righteousness is Christ alone. Without Christ, there is no hope for our brokenness. Why have I given you this survey of all the different world religions? This week, our community faced a great tragedy. And people are asking deep questions. As a church... We want to be the kind of church, though we are imperfect and though we don't always get it right, where people can come and safely say, I want to believe, but I'm struggling because this. But, but brokenness and death force us to think about real reality. It's not enough to come up with theories in an ivory tower or in some remote location, but we must recognize that the human person has deep questions. What's wrong with the world? Is there a God? Can I know this God? If I can know this God, then how? These are the inescapable questions of life. You may not have ever used that phrase, but there have been moments in your life where you've been faced with pain and agony, where you've prayed for healing and it didn't come, where you've sought the Lord and yet you still saw your family fall apart. That is the story of us. But it doesn't have to end there. Just as God provided for Adam and Eve, and as early as Genesis 3.15, He promises that Satan's going to be crushed by the seed of the offspring of this woman. That's the Messiah. How do I get the Messiah out of Genesis 3.15? The ancient rabbis would write in their Bibles about how Genesis 3.15 was pointing to the Messiah. By the way, if you read through Revelation, it talks about how Christ has done exactly that in His work on the cross. Through His active and passive obedience, through His personal work on the cross, He has smashed Satan. Now, how come we still deal with it? It, all the time. Pain, brokenness, disappointment, sadness, tragedy. It's because... Though Christ reigns as king, we're in this world of the now and not yet. But Christ will return. Christ is reigning over the world. There is nothing outside the sphere of his sovereignty. He's king over every square inch, including your heart. And yet, the devil goes about seeking whom he may devour. But brothers and sisters, I want to submit to you that Jesus is our advocate Job, if you read through Job, he says, Oh, that there were an arbiter to stand between me and God. An arbiter is, is an attorney. And in some respects, Jesus is that for us because it is His blood that is applied, that He pleads on our behalf. 
How do you answer the problem of evil? What do you run to when you hurt? Well, there's a lot of places we can turn to, but I encourage you to run to Christ, the source of life and hope. I want to illustrate it this way. Think about a 10-foot long tapestry. On the back side of that tapestry, you're going to see string that's sewn together, and it just really kind of looks ugly. And we see that in our experience. We only see the messed up, broken disorderedness. And yet, on the other side of it is a beautiful portrait. And God says that about you in Christ, because guess what? He says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made with a purpose, with a design. My grandmother used to cross-stitch, and it was the same thing. If you look on the back of the cross-stitching, it was a mess. But then you look on the other side, and it's a picture of something beautiful like a sunrise. That is the human story. We often only see the ugly, but God sees the finished product. And He's not done with you, and He's not done with us. No doubt about it, our story is broken. But the brokenness doesn't get the last word. Let's have some application points from this passage. Number one, God permits things that he doesn't necessarily cause. I can't answer every question that you have. Why did God do this? Why didn't God heal my grandmother? Why did God allow this? Why this? Why that? Why did God allow Hitler to rise? Why did, why, I can't answer all those questions for you this morning. But I can tell you this. God permits a whole lot of things He doesn't cause. And He permits us to go through stuff so that we will learn to trust Him and so that we'll be better for it. Too many times we read Romans 8. The whole creation longs for deliverance and the Messiah's return. And we skip past that part to Romans 8, 31, that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. We need to think about grief differently, Christians. We need to think about the brokenness, not only that Adam and Eve did, but that you and I participate in every single day. We also need to think about the goodness of God. Number one application, you've got to recognize that God permits things that He doesn't cause. Number two, we need to distinguish between the logical problem of evil and the emotional problem when we're talking to people. People that are hurting don't want a logical explanation for why. They need to know that they matter and that God sees them and that God loves them and that God cares for them. And maybe the best thing we can learn from Job's friends, for example, is not what we should say, but rather to have a ministry of presence and love people. As Christians, we are really bad at this. We want people to hurry up and be okay, but grief doesn't work that way. And we can go to the counseling office, and if you need therapy, I recommend it. I've gone to therapy before in my life. I think it's great and awesome, especially if it's with a Christian counselor that believes God's Word is true and that believes that God is the, the solution for our, our, our problems. But ultimately, people need more on the emotional side of the problem of evil. Are you hurting this morning? I don't have ex explanation on why you're particularly going through whatever situation it is. But I can tell you this, I don't want you to be alone. 
one of the reasons that the church in America is in decline is because we've exchanged superficiality for our faith. People come to church, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Meanwhile, you're sitting there in the pews struggling in agony. We don't have all the answers, but we sure hope that none of you go through anything alone. We hope that this can be a safe place where everyone feels loved and welcome and where you don't have to cope with your pain alone. Distinguish between the emotional problem and the logical problem of evil. Decide, number three, application to identify not only with the first Adam, but with the second Adam in Romans chapter 5. Jesus is the new and better Adam. Number four, God is in this story even when it feels impossible. Our story doesn't make sense as humans if the Christian worldview and the Bible are untrue. Other competing worldviews cannot give satisfactory answers to this problem. That's why we have this high problem of drugs and all these other things. I, I had to read a book for a class this week on art. Man and his expression in art, whether that be through music or painting or whatever, man lost himself in the Enlightenment because we got rid of God in the 17th century, 18th century, and God is taken away. And when you take God and religion and faith out of the picture, humans can't make sense of themselves, which is why we look at some of the art that we have now. We're like, what does this even mean? What that art means is an individual crying out for hope because they see none. Brothers and sisters... I've studied a lot of different things. Only Scripture, only the God of the Bible satisfies the deepest longing of our soul. We all identify with Genesis 3 in one way or another. We've got to get Genesis 3 right if we're going to understand the rest of the Bible. Its historicity is important. It's important for us emotionally, and God helps us make sense of our broken story through His Word. And it shows us how our story can actually be restored through God's provision. In just a little bit, we're going to sing a song together called, Is He Worthy? We sang it last week, and we're singing it again this week. And I want us to reflect on the seriousness of our sin and our separation from God and the significance of what Christ has done for our time of response. And as we sing that in just a moment, there's a line in the song that says, Do you feel the world is broken? I think we can all respond to that in the affirmative. But that that Christian Christmas hymn that we sing around Christmas time, Joy to the World, is also true. For as the curse is found, that is the extent to which Christ, His reach, extends. And it extends to you, and it extends to me. We can't pull ourselves up out of this broken slew of despond. But we can... Trust Him who will lift us up out of the pit and set our feet on a rock. Will you pray with me this morning? Lord God, we are desperately broken. We can't make sense of our world without You. And yet we try to numb the pain through different means and escape. Lord, I pray that You help us to think about how Genesis 3 is relevant for our lives. I pray for those people under the sound of my voice who are struggling to trust you right now because life is so hard. 
I pray that you ease their burden. I pray that you intervene in their story. I pray that you help them make sense, Lord. But even when they don't have answers, I pray that they'll be able to say that God is in this story. And Lord, as we prepare to render unto you worship through song, I pray that the truths of your word will resonate with us. Because the world is broken. And yet, Christ, you are our hope in life and in death. Lord Jesus, do whatever you need to do through this message. We lay it at your feet and ask that you be glorified through our effort and that you translate any of our brokenness that's been communicated today. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with us and sing this morning?